Broadcasting from Littlehampton, UK, this is the Man Up Podcast. From Sorted Magazine, official sponsor, staggerversary.co.uk. Loading in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. This is Steve Legg on the Sorted Magazine Man Up Podcast. It's great to have you with us on our special Christmas show. On today's seasonal offering, we hear from funny man Paul Carenza, award-winning author Dr Mark Stibby, and the fabulous Rob Parsons. It's an absolute cracker. You see, you see what I did there. So uh, sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and tell your friends. Hi, this is Lieutenant Colombo, and you are listening to the Man Up Podcast. The most fun you can have without a cigar and a trench coat. All right, I think I've bothered you enough for today. I'll let you go on and listen. Oh, oh, and just one more thing. Enjoy the show. First up, it's the hilarious Paul Carenza, a great entertainer who's equally at home performing his own brand of stand-up at both comedy clubs and churches, as well as being a great writer. I invited him along to our sorted Christmas stew to discuss his new History of Christmas book, Hark, A Biography of Christmas, which hit the bookshelves and, would you believe it, sold out its first print run within a fortnight. Sorted Man Up Podcast. These guys are great. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. However, not as good as America will be when I am done with it. Paul Crenza. Hello. Hello. Comedy writer, stand-up, Christmas expert. I like to think you are. No, I'm, 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 I'm uh, inheriting this role of, of Christmas <laughs> expert. From many people have done it in days gone by. Yeah. Welcome to our Christmas day. Oh, cheers! It's lovely. Well, you can, you can, if you listen carefully, you might hear the roaring log fire flickering away and bar staff in the background. Yeah, yes, is it? Are you a pate or soup starter man? I go soup. Warms you up this time of year. Ah, warms your cockles. You see, I always go for pate. My thinking is, why have something you can have at home? When you go out, but I would say that it's easy to do pate. But it's easy to do pate at home, isn't it? I mean, you know, just buy it from Tesco. I mean, but but it is impressive when you get the bread that is cut so thinly. That's true. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I can never do that. Kind of toast, and I could do that, which is is my thinking. So you have a new book out, Heart Biography of Christmas, new for this year. How did that come about? Came about because uh, well, partly I was chatting with her in the 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 inner workings of the publishing industry. I was chatting with the publisher, basically said, "Got any ideas?" And for ages, I've been a bit of a Christmas nut. And I, um, I think it, which particularly grew from the fact that for years, me and my old, my old housemates would get together, have a pre-Christmas dinner, uh, sort of week before Christmas, and that was almost more more magical than proper Christmas for me because it, it's, you know, Christmas is in the air on like nineteenth, twentieth of December, and you'd, we'd have three or four courses, we'd have readings between each course, we'd have candles, oh, like that. we'd have like Charles Dickens' recipe for the perfect Christmas pudding, and you know we'd try and make it the most classic sort of Christmas you could have. And uh, and after doing this for five, six, seven years, finding more and more little readings and things, I started to puzzle out a bit, like, well, what's behind all this stuff? Why why do we have a white Christmas? Why did Dickens write about what he wrote about and all this sort of stuff? And I ended up sort of going down the rabbit hole a bit on this book. So it's meant to start off being not as big and as epic and as historical as it is. And then over the uh, months of research... Turns out I've done the entire history of Christmas somehow, so it well, very fell into place along the way, you know. It looks like a cracking read. So, are you uh, are you very much a traditionalist when it comes to Christmas? Well, I think it's, the thing for me is I always thought I, I suppose I am, but at the same time, part of the thing I've always battled with is there are so many traditions to do with Christmas, and it's reached the point now you've got to pick and choose, you know. And even if you say, "Oh, well, I'm a I'm a churchy Christmas person," I just do church at Christmas. 
you go right. What is that? Chris Dingle? Is it Midnight Mass? Is it the Carol Service? Is it Nine Lessons and Carol? There are there are even oh, yes. four or five different church variants you can pick and choose. Then you've got the people who go, well, I'm more, you know, commercial. Well, does that mean you're buying toys for the kids? Does it mean you're getting the biggest turkey you can find, the biggest credit card bill, whatever it means? So every single flavour of Christmassy custom you can imagine, you've then got to kind of still puzzle out. You know, you can think, I'm going to watch a brilliant Christmas film. Brilliant. You've got 30 to choose from. What's it going to be? You know, do you go Scrooge or Scrooge? You know, you've got so which version <laughs> of Christmas? Sound of Music. Sound of Music. Which Christmas is Eve, it's not that Christmassy. Christmas. Totally. You know, Great Escape, both of them involving escaping from Nazis. Not that Christmassy, it turns out. Die Hard. Die Hard, which is a Christmas classic. Christmas. I've got friends who every December have, early December, they have the annual Die Hard watch. And that's what they do. <laughs> that's Christmas for them is watching Die Hard. You know, which is yeah. your favourite Die Hard? It's got to be the first one, I think. But then I've got a soft spot. I love two. Well, I, I was going to say, I love two. three as well. That little you know, cat and mouse chase with Jeremy Irons across oh, Central Park. That's lovely. That but two is great as well. Yes. You, you know, I mean, we can all agree it's one, two, and three. Once you start going to four and five, you, you think, no, let's, uh, let's... Six was never made, was it? I don't know if they even got a six. I sort no. of ran out of four and a half, I think. You know. yeah. Now, Paul, you won't know this about me, but I am half Viking. Is that I'm, right? My mum is Danish. I never knew. I know. And I've always finished a Danish Christmas. Do you know much about a Danish Christmas? I don't. I imagine it involves Hygge. Hygge candles and all that sort of thing. Right. But, but uh, in Denmark, they celebrate on Christmas Eve. Right. So it's a big meal. Okay. Families, goose, presents. Nice. And I've always fancied that. So I thought, a nice meal, mm. wine, beer. You don't want to do that on Christmas Day. No. At lunchtime, no. do you? No, exactly. Um, and now my wife, I can generally talk around... Mm. Right, right. <laughs> but she will not have it. Right, but I've always fancied that. Are you up for alternative Christmases? I think it's so, absolutely. Well, I know that the um, and again, anything where there's form to it, there's a bit of. I mean, Christmas, as as I was sort of discovering, has always really been about just looking over your shoulder and going, well, how they used to celebrate it then. That's quite nice. So nowadays we look to the Victorian times, that sort of thing. But in the Victorian times, they're looking to the medieval times and and so on. Everyone's always looking. Oh, that, let's grab hold of that Christmas. And so as long as there's form on it, and there is form on, you know, as you say, the, the fact that Danish do it, and even our own royals, they have their big Christmas thing is Christmas Eve. They have a massive... Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, is the German, yes, the German way, you know. They do presents, they do a big meal Christmas Eve, and they will have a Christmas lunch as well, but the big one is Christmas Eve. So I think, you know, the Danish, the Germans, the Northern European... And of course, if you go Eastern Europe... 6th of January. Yeah, exactly. My birthday. Oh, is that right? Yes. Oh, it's Christmas Day, isn't it? Is that it? right? Happy, happy Epiphany birthday. Then. Thank yeah. you, mate. Paul, TV ads, when did they yeah. become so popular? Because it's certainly noticed the last yeah, few years. Yeah. And I know this year, John Lewis spending mm. £7 million. Was it £7 million? I didn't know that. that. Wow. <laughs> on that one, <laughs> of all yeah. things, I know. Yeah, well, in fact, you know, one of the things I found when writing the book was you think to make it feel like it's current and now and topical... If you write any history book, you've got to go, when do you stop? You know, how do you write the most recent, what's the most recent historical contribution you can find to the modern Christmas? So I've gone with the John Lewis ad, and that's really where the book ends. Because that, for me, is one of those things that, in the last few years, people are now going, well, Christmas is Christmas. We can start doing the Christmas songs and what? Once John Lewis, you know, um, pulled the old uh, trigger on the starter pistol with, with their ad. Once the ad's out, they're like, oh, right. And it came out, you know, a few days ago as uh, um, we record this, and... I remember I watched it going, well, that, I think that means we're off, you yes. know. And what did you make of it? Well, I didn't. the monster? It's not as good as, you know, you're not you're crying about that one. It's not as good as last year. It's not teary, is it, you know? No. 
They're getting quite formulaic as well with this cut, the, the plinky plonky cover version. Yeah. You know, some of them worked. That please, please let me get more what I want. I, I, I still cry at that. I, you know, I well up hearing this. I know this is a man up podcast, but I'm not afraid to say, you know. You're in touch with your feminine I'm side. I'm in touch with that. You know, it's beautiful. But, but no, more I'm not quite sure about. But the weird thing I found is that it's an advert which we're now seeking out on, on YouTube and things. Yeah. We want to think, I want to watch the advert. We don't watch adverts nowadays. So we watch it online. Yeah. But before you watch the advert, they show you an advert for something else. You've got to sit through a 30 second advert before we get the advert. You think this has gone a bit crazy now. Yeah, it has gone crazy. As you were researching the book, um, any really unusual facts, traditions? Oh, a thousand, a ton. I don't know where to begin. Can you give me two or three? Uh, the ones. tradition, the modern traditional uh, Christmas dinner in Japan is KFC. That is, no. yep, in the last 30 years since uh, some American businessmen went there in the 70s and were there for Christmas. Yeah. And, uh, and they were looking for a Christmas dinner, couldn't find one, so they went to KFC. And uh, no, I'm fine, thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> it really is the Christmas. It is the Christmas party. party. Well, Cheers. Well, we should we should clink. Um, there you go. Why not? Boom. There you go. Yes, <laughs> we're not making this up. These, these Japanese businessmen wanted. So the American businessmen wanted in Japan Christmas dinner. Found KFC. It grew from there, and now people queue around the block to get their annual Christmas Day uh, KFC bucket. And uh, that's what they do. That is the Japanese Christmas. So that's one thing. Um, going way back further, I didn't realise that King Herod had a wife called Doris. Um, no. Which is Where did you get this from? Well, it's not in the Bible. That's more the history books. But then, uh, but then Herod is one of the few people in the Christmas story, of course, who you can actually look at in the history books. Because as a king, he's recorded in the history books. And you can see that he was a really nasty piece of work. Even for the time period, he was... He went above and beyond to kill as many people as he could, you know, in his close circle around. Even to the point he thought he wouldn't be mourned when he died himself, which of course he wouldn't be, because everyone was going to be rejoicing at this fact. So he actually gave orders to his soldiers that when he died, people had to, the soldiers had to go out and kill other people. Thank you so much. Thank you. Here's our turkey. Here you go. What, what, a, what a moment with all the trimmings. Thank all you, right Perfect. Enjoy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so so Herod's orders were to go out and execute lots of well-liked people in society so that the public would actually shed a few tears not for him but for them but you know it would all count he thought so. well crazy I tell you what I miss back in the day when we were kids we talked about how many shopping days oh yeah until Christmas yes invented by Gordon Selfridge he invented that thing yeah. wow and of course that doesn't happen anymore because shops yeah, are open all the time in the that's internet true. so You're that's right. something that's been yeah, and gone yeah. hasn't it yeah it has been, been and gone, gone. Yeah. finally Paul was like yes. turkey is here and getting yes, cold yes indeed we can't have that and um, pigs in blankets yeah. and, tur- and turnips and all the trimmings a, I'm going to have a Christmas nut while, I, while you ask your question please do yeah. how will you be celebrating Christmas in the Carenza house this year well once again a mix of everything a bit of spiritual yeah. Bit of church. We used to do midnight mass. Then we had kids, so now we do the. You can't be up that late nowadays. <laughs> so now, um, now we do the Chris Dingle carol service uh, thingy on the uh, the Christmas Eve afternoon. Um, we also then do the family stuff on Christmas Day, so that's going to be very nice. Are you um, likely to be up very early with your little ones? Then they're, they're not bad. They're pretty good in the morning. So they'll they'll be about seven seven thirty start, which on what is not oh, bad okay, for yeah. a lot of Christmas Day younguns. So bit of that. Some prezzies. Always got that dilemma, do you open prezzies before or after Christmas lunch? Yeah. Still not quite sure. I think a few no. before, a few after, a few during. So, uh, yeah, we're having that usual wrestle between the family members about what sort of Christmas we should be having and trying to get it right this year. Will Mrs. Carenza be cooking a turkey? Mrs. Carenza will be dining on uh, on Mrs. <laughs> I've got to work out the name here now. Mrs. Mother-in-law's turkey. So, oh, really? uh, so yes, we're going there. We're going to theirs for this year. I would imagine so. she'll be eating healthy because I, I remember on one of your excellent podcasts... Uh, Second mm. favourite podcast in all the world. 
Paul Carenza podcast. Oh yes, the Hepkin Club. Yeah. Yes, the Hepkin Club. That's the one. Uh, talking about how good kebabs are for you. Oh yes, that's and right. I've told a lot of people because I do like a kebab, and yeah. you always felt it's very. Well, we had one last healthy. night. We had a takeaway last night. We had kebabs. Come on, this is it. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Happy Christmas, everybody. You know, not turkey kebab, but we can work on that for next time. Great idea. Healthy friendships are important. Friends who listen, laugh, challenge, and offer sound counsel. Who has time for that? We do. Why not have a stagiversary? Unite both old and new friends over a day, weekend, or even longer. But this time round, you set the agenda. At Stagiversary, we believe in fun and adventure. But most of all, helping you to create space to rest, refuel, and reconnect with the important people in your life. What are you waiting for? Visit staggiversary.co.uk, inquire within, and let us do the rest. Next up is Dr. Mark Stibby, an old friend and neighbour of mine. We used to enjoy long dog walks and cheeky fry-ups as we chatted and strolled along Littlehampton Beach together. But he's not just a super fit dog walker. Oh no, he's an amazing author and his latest title, The Fate of Kings, has recently hit the shops. Steve Legg brings you the best podcast every single month. It's so great. He's a great guy. No one knows more about great podcasts than me. The features, the interviews, even the adverts. It's a great show. Fantastic. Enjoy the show. Hey Doc, how did you find writing fiction for the first time after years as an acclaimed non-fiction writer? Uh, I found it incredibly difficult. Uh, writing fiction after 30 years of writing non-fiction was like learning a brand new language. I thought I was going to take to it easily, but I found it extremely challenging. But there was a, a critical moment for me in um, the summer of 2013 when I saw that there was this fiction writers conference or workshop rather going uh, going on in California in a hotel and I really felt that it was right for me to be there and I spent three days there being coached um, with about 20 others including my twin sister um, Claire who's a full-time novelist in New Mexico a very successful one um, we were coached together by this brilliant uh, novelist and teacher and during those three days I just understood what you needed to do and I suddenly got it this massive difference between fiction and non-fiction and especially in the massive difference between the way in which we write fiction today and the way in which I uh, thought we wrote fiction which is um, like Dickens in the 19th century you know it's changed so much as a result of TV and cinema and so on I had to learn um, a whole lot of new skills. What research did you undertake in writing the novel? Lots of trips to France, I'm thinking? Uh, no trips to France, but an awful lot of reading. And actually, um, there was a very, very important moment when I saw a new book had come out about the British Secret Service in the period 1793 following. Um, and I asked a friend if he'd mind buying that book for me as a present because I couldn't afford it myself. I was so skint at the time. And when I read it, uh, Elizabeth Sparrow's book, it just opened every door and window in the house of my creativity. And I suddenly found myself um, enthralled by that period, that decade, last decade of the 18th century, when 
the terror was beginning to take a grip of France. The guillotine was being wheeled into the center of every city. Um, and uh, there was a great shadow, really, beginning to come across the channel from France to the shores of Kent, where our fictional vicar, uh, Thomas Price, becomes the new incumbent in January 1793 and eventually becomes involved in espionage. Mark, of course, you wrote the novel with G.P. Taylor, a very well-known author. Tell us about the process of co-writing this novel. How did it work logistically, for example? And what was the most difficult or exciting thing about the whole process? Well, I wrote the whole of the first draft of the novel in the summer and autumn of 2013, and then began the slow process of redrafting and revising it in 2014, submitting it to literary agents and to publishers. Um, there was something wrong with the front end of the novel, and I couldn't quite sense what it was. And when you submit a manuscript to literary agents and publishers, you don't submit the whole thing, you just submit a synopsis in the first three chapters. And it was within those first three chapters that there was a fault line. It wasn't characteristic of the rest of the book. It was just located in that opening sequence. Um, in the May of 2015, uh, G.P. Taylor came to visit me, and he was in a very, very difficult time of his life. He'd had five very hard years. His confidence was at the lowest ebb as a writer. He hadn't really written anything during that period of time. And I was stuck with the front end of my novel. So I said to him, well, why don't we help each other? You know, I'll help you get your confidence back by inviting you into a collaboration and you can help me see what's wrong with the front end of the novel. And that's really exactly what happened. So after that, the front end of the novel was was changed. There was just one scene that needed taking out. And once that had happened, it began to flow um, there was some little bit of editing needed for the rest of the novel, and then we were good to go. Um, so, you know, it was a very, I think, it was a very mutually beneficial interaction and collaboration. W will it be the case for the next uh, novels? No, because uh, Graham has said, G.P. Taylor said that um, that's enough for him, and uh, I'm happy to go it on my own now and write them all myself. I'm envisaging probably about 12 in the series. I've got storylines for certainly that number from 1793 to 1821. And I'm really, really excited about going for it now. Why did you choose 18th century England and France as the setting for Fate of Kings? And what do you think that adds to the plot? Well, there are two reasons why I, I chose this particular period in history. Number one, because ever since I was about seven or eight years old, this is the particular uh, period of history that I've been most passionate about and interested in. So I'm talking about 1789, the start of the French Revolution, to 1821, the death of Napoleon. That's always deeply fascinated me. And so the old maxim that writers do hold to, which is write what you know, adhered to my particular situation very neatly because... I was writing about what I already knew about and felt very, very excited about. But secondly, I, I recognised reading Elizabeth Sparrow's book, which is absolutely brilliant, uh, breathtaking, game-changer of historical research, that there were really strong resonances and echoes between um, what we're experiencing now in British political and national history and what they were experiencing then. So 
1793, the big issue was refugees coming into the country, immigration, if you will, because amongst all of those French émigrés that were fleeing from the terror, amongst all of those legitimate refugees, there were terrorists, terrorists, who were really intent on bringing down the monarchy and the British government with acts of extreme violence and treachery. Um, and so there was a British Secret Service set up to identify, quotes, the spy in our midst. Um, and I think that that has remarkable parallels today where, you know, in post-Brexit Britain, we now know that issues of immigration and terror have dominated political discourse and particularly the rhetoric around whether we should leave Europe or not. Um, so all of this is frighteningly uh, relevant to today, not least because the chosen method of terrorizing was decapitation, which we've seen with ISIS as well. So I, I think that there are a lot of extraordinary, uh, there's a lot of enriching that can happen between the fusion of these two horizons in a series of novels. In the latest bumper edition of Sorted magazine, big name exclusive interviews, Hollywood A-listers, TV adventurer Bear Grylls, inspirational true life stories, adrenaline-fueled sports features, all this plus gadgets, entertainment, motoring, movies and technology, plus probably the greatest team of Christian writers ever assembled. Available now from high street retailers nationwide or visit sortedmag.com. Sorted for men, for life. And finally, it's the international speaker and best-selling author, Rob Parsons. Rob's the founder and chairman of Care for the Family, an amazing national charity which aims to strengthen family life and help those hurting because of family difficulties. In 2012, Rob was honoured in the Queen's New Year's Honours list when he was awarded the OBE. He really is a hero of mine, and it's a genuine honour to have him on the show. Over to you, Robster. When whiling away the days, months, and years of the Shawshank State Penitentiary, I love nothing more than to listen to the Sordid Man Up podcast. Fear can hold you captive. Man Up can set you free. Rob, thanks a million for joining us on our Christmas podcast. Christmas is a time when most of us, even those who may not claim to have a faith, are reminded of one of the greatest stories of all time. What does Christmas mean to you? Oh, I think, well, I think it means uh, lots. I think at heart, it does mean that Jesus has come into the world and that uh, uh, God loves us. You know, there's that lovely verse, the people that walked in darkness have seen a light. And I do think it, it's, it's hope. So, so at heart, it means that. But of course, a million other things as well. Family, laughter, fun. Uh, we have a, a homeless guy that came to stay with us one night for Christmas, 40 years ago, never left. So for us, it's an extended family, not just our own family. Yeah, all those lovely things. And of course, lots of great memories. And now remaking memories with, uh, with grandchildren. Your new book, Let Me Tell You a Story, The Very Best of Rob Parsons, is out. And I've got to say, it make a fabulous stocking filler. Uh, it's a collection of your own stories. What was the inspiration behind the book? Over 30 years, I've told uh, stories to audiences all across the world, from Bangkok to Borneo, from New York to Newark. I think I've spoken to uh, a million people in, in live events. And, and I discovered many years ago that when you tell stories, uh, you open people's hearts. So I decided to, to just compile about 50 of, uh, of the stories I've loved telling over the years. 
Sometimes, as I've told these stories, I've seen someone in the audience wipe away a tear, and, and sometimes I've been telling a story that I've told myself a hundred times, and I've caught my own eyes filling with tears. So, funny stories, stories of pathos, hope, despair, money, faith. Uh, they've called it the best of Rob Parsons. I don't know if it's the best, but these are my 50 stories that have touched my life. I guess as you decided what to include in the book, it brought back many memories. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, a, a, a million memories, uh, really. Uh, I, I tell some stories of when my kids were, were small. I, I tell a story about Lloyd coming home and saying, Dad, can I go clubbing tonight? I said, no, son, you've got your, your GCSE maths exam tomorrow. He said, well, everybody else's father's letting them do it. And, and I discovered that all these kids had everybody else's father. And, and then I got the, all the other fathers together. and Nobody had ever met everybody else's father. Everybody else's father let, let them do anything. He gave them massive amounts of money. He let them go on a holiday, on, on Club 18 holidays when they were like 15. He just agreed to everything. And, and I said to Lloyd one night, do you know what? You can do whatever you want to do so long as you produce him. Everybody else's father. I want to see this guy. And when I've got him, I'm going to lock him in my garage. And I'm going to ring all the other fathers and say, I've got him. I've got everybody else's father locked in my garage. And of course... Um, Everybody else's father doesn't exist. And, but as I've told that story, particularly the dads, they go, wow, you know, we get that too. So uh, I remember telling that story. I, re I remember getting off a plane in Johannesburg and my phone beeping and getting the news that one of my closest friends had died. And, and I tell a story of how I felt uh, that day. And then I remember two and a half years ago when my own daughter was uh, seriously ill and we... We thought we might lose her. And, and I remember at midnight within the high dependency ward, uh, she's got two children of her own now, and she just come up from a big op, and I'm standing there in the twilight of the ward with her husband. And, and she says, Dad, before you go, would you say a little prayer? When they were little, we used to say the same prayer with them every night, and the three of us held hands in that ward, and we said the old prayer again. Lord, keep us safe this night. Secure from all our fears. May angels guard us while we sleep till morning light appears. And suddenly down the decades, the old little prayer we used to say when she was a child came back. And she's well now, and I, I thank God for that. Oh, there are stories about rabbits and people of, with telephones and funny things that went right and wrong. And stories of my mama was an office cleaner and we didn't have any money. We didn't even have a... An inside toilet. We didn't have toilet paper, for goodness sake. Don't even ask. Except even now, I can't look at a copy of the South Wales Echo without a, a million memories coming flooding back. But she used to tell us how to handle money, and I, I talk about some of that stuff. So, yeah, lots of memories. Is storytelling an overlooked or neglected art? And what's the secret to telling a good story? Come on, fill us in, Robster. Well, I think it has been overlooked, but you know, in the, certainly in the business world, Forbes magazine said recently that storytelling is the new hip thing. Uh, I managed to, to miss PowerPoint. The whole thing is apparently it's really kind of fashionable these days not to use PowerPoint. Well, I'm suddenly in fashion because I just love telling stories. And, and I, I've told lots of stories over the years, both in the business world. I've sometimes told them to governments and blue chip companies and certainly lots of people in in churches and Jesus loved telling stories perhaps he told more stories than 
than anybody. In fact, the Bible says he, he didn't do anything without telling them a parable. And, and I think because stories open people's hearts. But certainly I was speaking in churches for many years before I really discovered the power of stories. But I think uh, in modern life we're beginning to, to tell stories again. What's your favourite story from the book? Oh, it's of a little boy, I think, whose parents owned one of the first telephones. And um, his mum used to dial it up and she used to say, information, please. And, and one day he banged his thumb with a hammer and, and his mum and dad were out. And then he remembered the telephone and he wound it up. It was a wooden thing. And he wound it up and he said, information, please. And a voice said, this is information. He said, I banged my thumb. And information, please, taught him how to deal with his thumb. And... And then he said, after that, I rang her for everything. She helped with my geography homework, for goodness sake. And, and then he said, my parents moved to New York City and I was out of her area. And I didn't believe information, please, could live in this new plastic phone. And I never rang her again till I was 24 years old. He said, when I was a little boy, one day my pet canary died. I was about 10 years old. And I rang her and said, why would God make anything that can sing so beautifully and let it die? Information, please, said Paul, you must always remember there were other worlds to sing in. When I was 24 years old, I, I flew into my old town and I looked at a, a, a telephone in the foyer of the airport and thought, I wonder. And I rang and I said, information, please. And a voice said, this is information. And I said, do you know, you really helped with my geography homework. And she said, I expect that thumb is better by now. And she said, I'm very old now, but if you're in my area, you ring me, won't you? And he said, I used to ring her. And one day I rang and I said, information, please. And a different voice said, this is information. And I said, could I speak to Sally? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, da Sally died a couple of days ago. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to have troubled you. No, wait. Is your name Paul? Why, yes, it is. Well, Paul, Sally said, if you happen to ring, we must be sure to give you this message. Paul, you must always remember there were other worlds to sing in. I like that story and I believe that sentiment. And finally, mate, I read the book while waiting to pick up one of my daughters from college and I'm certainly glad I had my sunglasses with me because as well as laughing out loud, I shed many tears. What's your hope for the book? Oh, well, just that. Life is full of laughter and tears, isn't it? And I, I just want people to, to read the books and to laugh with it and brush away a tear. Sometimes uh, that, that, can, that can be helpful. But above all, I think, I want people to read these stories and get hope and encouragement, occasionally see themselves in the story, and, and above all, perhaps be drawn a little closer uh, to the God who loves them and knows them. Hey, this is Sylvester Stallone, and I play it tough. You're listening to the Sword of Man Up podcast. This is what we do. Well, that's about it for now. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Have a fabulous Christmas. Best wishes to you and yours, and thank you for your support this year. A huge thank you to my special guests, Paul, Mark, and Rob Parsons. Do check out their books. Seriously, they make great Christmas presents. Get in there and order them. They bless you and others that you share them with. Until next time, this is Steve Flegg and friends on the Sorted Man Up podcast, signing out for 2017. Do encourage your mates to subscribe to the podcast and download and share on Facebook and Twitter and spread the word. Happy Christmas, and I'll see you next time. That was the Man Up Podcast. They'll be back.
You've been listening to the Man Up Podcast from Sorted Magazine. Recorded, edited, and delivered by flagshiprecording.com.